Chapter 19 of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 19 The Courtship of Shoshi Schmendrick, Part 1. Mekich was a chassid, which in the vernacular is a saint, but in the actual a member of the sect of the chassidim whose centre is Galatia. In the eighteenth century, Israel Baal Shem, the master of the name, retired to the mountains to meditate on philosophical truths. He arrived at a creed of cheerful and even stoical acceptance of the cosmos in all its aspects, and a conviction that the incense of an enjoyed pipe was grateful to the Creator. But it is the inevitable misfortune of religious founders to work at apocryphal miracles, and to raise up an army of disciples who squeeze the teaching of their master into their own mental moulds, and are ready to die for the resultant distortion. It is only by being misunderstood that a great man can have any influence upon his kind. The Baal Shem was succeeded by an army of thermaturgists, and the wonder-working rabbis of Sadagora, who were in touch with all the spirits of the air, and enjoy the revenue of princes, and the reverence of popes. To snatch a morsel of such a rabbi's Sabbath kugel, or pudding, is to ensure paradise, and the scramble is a scene to witness. Chassidism is the extreme expression of Jewish optimism. The Chassidim are the Corybants or Salvationists of Judaism. In England their idiosyncrasies are limited to noisy, jubilant services in their chevra, the worshippers dancing or leaning or standing or writhing or beating their heads against the wall as they will and frisking like happy children in the presence of their father. Mekich also danced at home, and sang varied by rom-pom-pom and a-bim-bum, in such a quaint melody to express his personal satisfaction with existence. He was a wizened little widower with a deep yellow complexion, prominent cheekbones, a hook nose, and a scrubby, straggling little beard. Years of professional practice as a mendicant had stamped his face with an anguished suppliant conciliatory grin, which he could not now erase even after business hours. It might perhaps have yielded to soap and water, but the experiment had not been tried. On his head he always wore a fur cap with lappets for his ears. Across his shoulders was strung a lemon basket filled with grimy, gritty bits of sponge which nobody ever bought. Mechit's merchandise was quite other. He dealt in sensational spectacle. As he shambled along with extreme difficulty and by the aid of a stick, his lower limbs, which were crossed in odd contortions, appeared half paralysed, 
and when his strange appearance had attracted attention, his legs would give way, and he would find himself with his back on the pavement, where he waited to be picked up by sympathetic spectators shedding silver and copper. After an indefinite number of performances, Mekich would hurry home in the darkness to dance and sing Tiddy-diddy-dry-ry-bim-bum. Thus Mekich lived at peace with God and man, until one day the fatal thought came into his head that he wanted a second wife. There was no difficulty in getting one by the aid of his friend Sugarman, the Shadchan, and soon the little man found his household goods increased by the possession of a fat Russian giantess. Mekich did not call in the authorities to marry him. He had a still wedding, which cost nothing. An artificial canopy made out of a sheet and four broomsticks was erected in the chimney-corner, and nine male friends sanctified the ceremony by their presence. Mekich and the Russian giantess fasted on their wedding morn, and everything was in honourable order. But Mekich's happiness and economies were short-lived. The Russian giantess turned out a tartar. She got her claws into his savings, and decorated herself with paisley shawls and gold necklaces. Nay, more. She insisted that Mekish must give her society and keep an open house. Accordingly, the bed-sitting-room which they rented was turned into a salon of reception, and hither, one Friday night, came Peleg Schmendrick and his wife, and Mr. and Mrs. Sugarman. Over the Sabbath meal the current of talk divided itself into masculine and feminine freshets. The ladies discussed bonnets, and the gentlemen Talmud. All the three men dabbled, prettily enough, in stocks and shares, but nothing in the world would tempt them to transact any negotiation or discuss the merits of a prospectus on the Sabbath, though they were all fluttered by the allurements of the Sapphire Mines Limited, as set forth in a whole page of advertisement in the Jewish Chronicle, the organ naturally perused for its religious news on Friday evenings. The share-list would close at noon on Monday. But when Moses, our teacher, struck the rock, said Peleg Schmendrick, in the course of the discussion, he was right the first time, but wrong the second, because, as the Talmud points out, a child may be chastised when it is little, but as it grows up it should be reasoned with. Yes, said Sugarman the Shadkin quickly, but if his rod had not been made of sapphire, he would have split that instead of the rock. What was made of sapphire? asked Mekich, who was rather a Am Haaretz, a man of the earth. Of course it was, and a very fine thing, answered Sugarman. Do you think so? inquired Peleg Schmendrick eagerly. The sapphire is a magic stone answered Sugarman. It improves the vision and makes peace between foes. 
Issachar, the studious son of Jacob, was represented on the breastplate by the sapphire. Do you not know that the mist-like centre of the sapphire symbolizes the cloud that enveloped Sinai, the giving of the law? Oh, I didn't know that, answered Peleg Schmendrick. But I know that Moses' rod was created in the twilight of the first Sabbath, and God did everything after that with this sceptre. Ah, but we are not all strong enough to wield Moses' rod. It weighed forty cellars, said Sugarman. Uh, how many cellars do you think one could safely carry? said Mekich. Oh, five or six, not more, said Sugarman. You see, one might drop them if he intended more, and even sapphire might break. The first tables of the law were made of sapphire, and yet from a great height they fell terribly and were shattered to pieces. Gideon, the MP, may be said to desire a rod of Moses, for his secretary told me he will take forty, said Schmendrick. Hush! What are you saying? said Sugarman. Gideon is a rich man, and then he is a director. It seems a good lot of directors, said Mekich. Good to look at, but who can tell? said Sugarman, shaking his head. The Queen of Sheba probably brought sapphires to Solomon, but she was not a virtuous woman. Ah, Solomon, sighed Mrs. Schmendrick, pricking up her ears and interrupting this talk of stocks and stones. If he had had a thousand daughters instead of a thousand wives, even his treasury couldn't have held out. I had only two girls, praise be he, and yet it nearly ruined me to buy them husbands. A dirty greener comes over without a shirt to his skin and nothing else, but he must have two hundred pounds in the hand. And then you've got to stick to his back to see that he doesn't take his breeches in his hand and off to America. In Poland he would have been glad to get a maiden, and would have said thank you." "'Well, what about your own son?' said Sugarman. "'Why haven't you asked me to find Shossi a wife? It's a sin against the maidens of Israel. He must be long past the Talmudical age.' Yeah, "'He's twenty-four, replied Peleg Schmendrick. said Sugarman clacking his tongue in horror. "'Have you perhaps an objection to his marrying?' "'Save us and grant us peace,' said the father, in deprecatory horror. "'Only Chaucy is so shy. You are aware, too, he is not uh, handsome. Heaven alone knows whom he takes after.' "'Peleg, I blush for you,' said Mrs. Schmendrick. "'What is the matter with the boy?' Is he deaf, dumb, blind, unprovided with legs? If Chaucy is backward with the women, it's because he learns so hard when he is not at work. He earns a good living by his cabinet-making, and it is quite time he set up a Jewish household for himself. How much will you want for finding him a collar? Hush, said Sugarman sternly. Do you forget that it is Shabbos? Be assured I shall not charge more than the last time, unless the bride has an extra good dowry." On Saturday night, immediately after Havdalah, 
Sugarman went to Mr. Belcovitch, who was just about to resume work, and informed him that he had the very chazan for Becky. "'I know,' he said. "'Becky has a lot of young men after her. But what are they but a pack of barebacks? How much will you give for a solid man?' After much haggling, Belkovitch consented to give twenty pounds immediately before the marriage ceremony, and another twenty at the end of twelve months. "'But no pretending you haven't got it about you when we're at the shawl. No asking us to wait till we get home,' said Sugarman. "'Or else I withdraw my man, even from under the chuppah itself. Uh, when shall I bring him for your inspection?' oh to-morrow afternoon sunday then becky will be out in the park with her young man it's best i shall see him first sugarman now regarded shoshi as a married man he rubbed his hands and went to see him he found him in a little shed in the back yard where he did extra work at home shoshi was busy completing little wooden articles stools and wooden spoons and money-boxes for sale in petticoat lane next day he supplemented his wages that way good afternoon shoshi said sugarman good evening murmured shoshi sawing away shoshi was a gawky young man with a blotched sandy face ever ready to blush deeper with the suspicion that conversation going on at a distance were all about him. His eyes were shifty and cat-like. One shoulder overbalanced the other, and when he walked he swayed loosely to and fro. Sugarman was rarely remiss in the offices of piety, and he was nigh murmuring the prayer at the sight of monstrosities, Blessed art thou who varies the creatures. But resisting the temptation, he said aloud, i have something to tell you shoshi looked up suspiciously uh, don't bother i'm busy he said and applied his plane to the leg of a stool but this is more important than stools how would you like to get married shoshi's face became like a peony uh, don't make laughter he said but i mean it you're twenty-four years old and ought to have a wife and four children by this time uh, but i don't want a wife and four children said shoshi of course not i don't mean a widow it's a maiden i have in my eye nonsense what maiden would have me said shoshi a note of eagerness mingling with the diffidence of the words what maiden got in himmel a hundred a fine strong healthy young man like you who can make a good living shoshi put down his plane and straightened himself there was a moment of silence then his frame collapsed again into a limp mass his head drooped over his left shoulder this is all foolishness you talk the maidens make mark be not a piece of clay i know a maiden who has you quite in affection the blush which had waned mantled in a full flood 
Shoshi stood breathless, gazing half-suspiciously, half-credulously, at this strictly honourable Mephistopheles. It was about seven o'clock, and the moon was a yellow crescent in the frosty heavens. The sky was punctured with clear-cut constellations. The backyard looked poetic in its blend of shadow and moonlight. "'A beautiful fine maid,' said Sugarman ecstatically, "'with pink cheeks and black eyes and forty pounds dowry.' The moon sailed smilingly along. The water was running into the cistern with a soothing, peaceful sound. Shoshi consented to go see Mr. Belkovitch. Mr. Belkovitch made no parade. Everything was as usual. On the wooden table were two halves of squeezed lemons, a piece of chalk, two cracked cups, and some squashed soap. He was not overwhelmed by Shoshi, but admitted he was solid. His father was known to be pious, and both his sisters had married reputable men. Above all, he was not a Dutchman. Shoshi left Number One Royal Street, Velkovich's accepted son-in-law. Esther met him on the stairs, and noted the radiance on his pimply countenance. He walked with his head almost erect. Shoshi was indeed very much in love, and felt that all that was needed for his happiness was a sight of his future wife. But he had no time to go and see her, except on Sunday afternoons, and then she was always out. Mrs. Belkovitch, however, made amends by paying him considerable attention. The sickly-looking little woman chatted to him for hours at a time about her ailments, and invited him to taste her medicine, which was a compliment Mrs. Belkovitch passed only to her most esteemed visitors. By and by she even wore her nightcap in his presence, as a sign that he had become one of the family. Under this encouragement Shoshi grew confidential, and imparted to his future mother-in-law the details of his mother's disabilities. But he could mention nothing which Mrs. Belkovitch could not cap, for she was a woman extremely Catholic in her maladies. She was possessed of considerable imagination. Once, when Fanny had selected a bonnet for her in a milliner's window, the girl had much difficulty in persuading her it was not inferior to what turned out to be a reflection of itself in a side-mirror. Oh, "'I'm so weak upon my legs,' she would boast to Shoshi. "'I was born with ill-matched legs. One is a thick one, and one is a thin one, and so it goes about.' Shoshi expressed his sympathetic admiration, and the courtship proceeded apace. Sometimes Fanny and Pesach Weingott would be at home working, and they were very affable to him. He began to lose some of his shyness and his lurching gait, and he quite looked forward to his weekly visit to the Belkoviches. It was the story of Simon and Iphigenia all over again. Love improved even his powers of conversation, for when Belkovich held forth at length 
Shoshi came in several times with so, and sometimes even in the right place. Mr. Belcovitch loved his own voice and listened to it, the arrested press-irons in his hand. Occasionally, in the middle of one of his harangues, it would occur to him that someone was talking and wasting time, and he would say to the room, "Sha, make an end, make an end, and dry up. But to Shoshi he was especially polite, rarely interrupting himself when his son-in-law-elect was hanging on his words. There was an intimate, tender tone about these causeries. "'I should like to drop down dead suddenly,' he would say, with the air of a philosopher who had thought it all out. "'Ah, I shouldn't care to lie up in bed and mess about with medicine and doctors. To make a long job of dying is so expensive.' "'So?' said Shoshi. "'Don't worry, Bear. I dare say the devil will seize you suddenly,' interposed Mrs. Belkovitch dryly. "'It will not be the devil,' said Mr. Belkovitch confidently, and in a confidential manner. "'If I had died as a young man, Shoshi, it might have been different.' Shoshi pricked up his ears to listen to the tales of Bear's wild cubhood. One morning, said Belkovitch, in Poland, I got up at four o'clock to go to supplications for forgiveness. The air was raw, and there was no sign of dawn. Suddenly I noticed a black pig trotting behind me. I quickened my pace, and the black pig did likewise. I broke into a run and heard the pig's paws patting furiously upon the hard-frozen ground. A cold sweat broke out all over me. I looked over my shoulder and saw the pig's eyes burning like red-hot coals in the darkness. Then I knew that the not-good one was after me. Hear, O Israel! I cried. I looked up at the heavens, but there was a cold mist covering the stars. Faster and faster I flew, and faster and faster flew the demon pig. At last the shawl came in sight. I made one last wild effort, and fell exhausted upon the holy threshold, and the pig vanished." "'So,' said Shoshi, with a long breath, "'immediately after Shul I spoke with the rabbi, and he said, "'Bear, are thy tefillin in order?' So I said, "'Yea, rabbi, they are very large, and I brought them of a pious scribe, Naphtali, and I looked to the knots weekly.' But he said, I will examine them. So I brought them to him, and he opened the head phylactery, and lo, in place of the holy parchment, he found bread-crumbs. Ay, ay, said Shoshi in horror, his red hands quivering. Yes, said Bear mournfully. I'd worn them for ten years, and moreover the leaven had defiled all my Passovers. Belkovitch also entertained the lover with details of the internal politics of the Sons of the Covenant. End of section one.